The following program is brought to you by Caltech. Thank you, Michelle. So today it's my pleasure to introduce our speaker, Dr. Andrea Donnellan. So Dr. Donnellan is currently a principal research scientist at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory and is also a research professor of Earth Sciences at the University of Southern California. Dr. Donnellan studies earthquakes and crustal deformation um, by integrating satellite technology with high-performance computer models. She is also the principal investigator of NASA's QuakeSim project, which is a uh, software that models the behavior of earthquake faults to improve earthquake forecasting and our understanding of the earthquake processes in general. This project was co-winner of NASA's Software of the Year Award in 2012. She's worked on a variety of different projects in the past and has also been the deputy, man deputy manager of JPL's science division. Originally, Dr. Donovan received a Bachelor of Science in Geology from The Ohio State University and then a master's and PhD in geophysics from Caltech. Upon completion of her PhD, she held a National Research Council postdoctoral fellowship at the NASA Goddard Space Flight Center. Later, uh, while working at JPL, she actually received a Master of Science in Computer Science from the University of Southern California. In addition to numerous, numerous technical awards, Dr. Donnellan has received the Presidential Early Career Award for, science, for Scientists and Engineers awarded in 1996, the JPL Lou Allen Award for Excellence in 2000, the Women in Aerospace Award for Outstanding Achievement in 2003, and she was also named the Woman of the Year in 2006 by the Muses of the California Science Center. And that award was actually recently given to Gwen Shotwell earlier this month, so it's a very prestigious group of professionals who have won that award. And finally, she even has a glacier named after her in Antarctica. So please join me in welcoming our speaker, Dr. Andrea Donnellan. So when Michelle, can you hear me from this mic? Okay. When Michelle and I talked about what I would speak about in terms of understanding earthquakes using space observations, it was 20 years since the Northridge earthquake, about the day she asked me to give this talk. So I said, well, how about a... 20 years from the Northridge earthquake, where we've been and where, we're, where we are now and where we're going. So that's the topic of my talk. Two weeks ago, we had the La Habra earthquake, so that's kind of the bookend of the where we are now in terms of understanding earthquakes. So I'll talk about primarily um, the Northridge earthquake, the 2010 Elmer Kukapa earthquake, and then the 5.1 La Habra earthquake that happened a couple of weeks ago. This is the San Andreas Fault here. You can see it from space. This is in the Carrizo Plain. And I'll talk about it a little more. Here's, um, and you can see it if you fly up and down from, from San Francisco. Sorry, I was trying to do science while I was giving my talk. So I'll just try to back off and give the talk and not do science. <laughs> um, here's the other end of the San Andreas Fault. I'll show you a map in a minute. This is near Palm Springs. Um, I was flying over a couple of weeks ago. And, and here's the southern expression of the San Andreas Fault. Again, you can see that from space. It's a very long fault, but it's also very complicated. And it's not the only fault, as I'll point out. So just to give a brief, brief history of earthquake studies, um, back in 132 AD, the Chinese invented the seismometer, which told you the direction 
from, uh, that an earthquake was by the balls falling out of these little dragons' mouths. Um, now I hear a mic. The first seismometer was in 1855, um, which measured the time, duration, and intensity. In 1880, um, these people invented a seismometer to measure waveforms. In 1950, 15 continental drift was first proposed and then uh, more accepted in its current form as plate tectonics in the 50s. And the Richter scale was born around 1935, which measured the intensity of the earthquake. Now, all of these, except for continental drift, measured the shaking of an earthquake, the waveforms, well, not necessarily the waveforms, but the expression of the shaking of the earthquake in some form. Um, Hanks and Kanamori figured out around 1979 that the the slip on the fault times its area can correspond to a magnitude of an earthquake by um, estimating the moment magnitude of moment of an earthquake and then making that correlate with the magnitude of an earthquake, which mapped roughly to the Richter scale. But in terms of science, the Richter scale is really obsolete. It's reference to an earthquake in California, 100 kilometers away from a, a seismometer. In 1984, space geodesy was born for studying plate tectonics. Um, this is very long baseline interferometer. It's a huge dish that measures quasars. And they figured out if you had these on different tectonic plates, you could actually measure the plate motion. Um, GPS was first applied to studying earthquakes or studying crustal deformation in 1991, and then interferometric synthetic aperture radar in 1994. So 1992, well, the paper came out in 94 for a 92 earthquake. So I'll be talking about everything from the 1980s to present. Um, this is the western United States. Here's Baja, California. The Gulf of California is actually spreading open. Um, this is the Salton Sea. Los Angeles is down here. The San Andreas Fault runs up through the Carrizo Plain. Um, so the two areas I showed you, the first slide on the title slide was the Carrizo Plain up here. The other was the San Andreas Fault down here. Nevada is spreading. The Basin Range is spreading. Um, the Juan de Fuca Plate is subducting under Oregon and Washington and can produce very large Cascadia earthquakes. And then the Pacific Plate is moving up to the northwest, and the North American Plate is moving down into the southeast. So Southern California is in a very complex area where it's bounded by spreading down here in the Gulf of California, spreading across the basin and range, shearing from the Pacific North American plate boundary. And the San Andreas Fault goes through a big bend here, which causes a big compressional regime in Los Angeles. So back to our San Andreas Fault, it's a major plate boundary fault, but it's not the only fault. And the plate boundary is actually a very wide zone, probably about 100 kilometers wide. So here we are again with our first slide. Here's the San Andreas Fault. Um, here's a section of that here. This is called Wallace Creek. It's an offset stream. And paleoseismologists go and dig trenches across these offsets and date them to find out history of past earthquakes. So we actually work with some geologists and paleoseismologists to try and in fuse all of our data together from present day to back tens of thousands of years. So one thing I should mention is I'm not going to say anything about the waveforms of earthquakes. I'll talk about the magnitude of earthquakes, and I'll talk about um, the size of them, the amount of slip on them, but I won't talk about the waveforms. We look at the integrated motion across the earthquake. So here's an oblique view of California. These are GPS velocities. You can actually see the plate motion in a vector field. Um, we use faults, which tell us about where the location of the earthquakes maybe in the earthquake faults. We use seismicity, so we don't use the waveforms, but we do use the location and size of earthquakes. And then we use interferometric synthetic aperture radar. Here it is as UAV SAR flown on a Gulf, 
Green 3, it's not uninhabited. Um, here's the pod, the radar pod. And what you do is send, send a waveform down at an angle. And um, if you fly that exact same repeat pass and the ground moves, the radar waves actually will interfere and give you a nice interference pattern, which you see here. The opposite is thinking of stereo, just like our stereo vision. If the ground doesn't move, but you fly the radar antenna at two different points, as they did with the shuttle radar topography mission, then you can measure the topography. So what I'm interested in is the small motions um, associated with earthquakes. And this is the first image of the earthquake of an earthquake using UAV SAR, the Elmer Kukapa earthquake. So here's just a conceptual overview. I thought I'd show this. I actually put this together for myself to try and get my head around what was going on in the California area. So I'll show it a few times. What I did was I just literally chopped up, everywhere I saw strain, I chopped up, chopped out a little piece, and then I moved them. So it's greatly exaggerated tectonic motion, but it helps me understand where I want to focus my attention. So I'll run this movie a couple of times. Um, so what you'll see is the Pacific plate going up here, the North American plate going uh, moving down this way. The basin and range is spreading, but we don't open up these giant gaps, so we actually sort of spread and shear at the same time and drop these blocks down. And then here, because the San Andreas Fault goes around this big bend, we get compressional regime two. And I'll talk about these series of right lateral and left lateral conjugate faults that we have. Light, right laterals, if you're standing, looking across a fault, if the ground's moving left on the other side of the fault, it's left lateral. If it's moving right, it's right lateral fault. Predominantly, we have right lateral shear in California, but we have these conjugate left lateral faults. Um, so I'll just play this again so you can see it. It's a little toy, but I think it's useful. We have down here, um, we have the Eastern California shear zone, the San Andreas Fault, the San Jacinto Fault, the Elsinore Fault, the Newport Inglewood Fault, and then a jumble of faults um, that cause things like the Whittier Narrows earthquake, the Northridge earthquake, and the La Habra earthquake that we just had. So now, to put it in slightly more scientific terms, um, these are position velocities of GPS stations. So this is as of about two years ago I made this. We fixed a station on the San Gabriel block, and you can see that stations on the entire San Gabriel, San Gabriel mountain range are not moving relative to each other. So this is just kind of like a ball bearing. We call it the San Gabriel knot, and everything flows around it. Um, out here in the Mojave Desert, we have the Eastern California shear zone. Um, the San Andreas Faults up here, these are residual velocities from the um, earthquake that occurred in San Simeon. Um, that's some post-seismic motion there. And I'll talk about um, three earthquakes. There was a fourth major one that I won't talk about, that's, but that's worth mentioning. So the first one was the 1994 magnitude 6.7 Northridge earthquake. I had studied that region for my PhD thesis prior to the earthquake occurring. And sort of the major results are the mountains grew because of this thrust motion about 40 centimeters in the earthquake itself, and they moved to the north. The, the San Fernando Valley moved to the north. And then JPL Mesa, a station at JPL, actually moved later quietly um, a total of about four centimeters over about two years following the earthquake. JPL sits on a very major fault, the Sierra Madre fault system. Typically, it, it, it can produce magnitude five plus earthquakes, which it did in 1989, but it can also occasionally produce earthquakes up to magnitude 7.2. Um, if anybody works in building 238, it goes through the corner of your building. One of the displays, <laughs> anyways. Um, 
So what I have here are the geodetic observations. Red is seismic, so we measured the offset from the earthquake that occurred from the shaking. Blue is aseismic, so there's continued slip that we were able to measure. And that's one of the things that ge geodetic data gives us that we don't get out of the seismometers, and that's the quiet slip that we can't measure because we're not measuring the shaking. Um, then in 1992, there was the magnitude 7.3 Landers earthquake, and it was followed right away by the Big Bear earthquake, which was a left lateral vent. There would be an arrow going the other way. Um, that was followed by the, oops, 1997 Hector Mine earthquake. Um, and then in 2010, we had the magnitude 7.2 El Mayor Kukapa earthquake, which we had measured with UAV SAR, with radar. The fault had about three meters of slip on it that broke the surface. But then we measured a seismic slip on the Imperial Superstition Hills and East Elmore Ranch faults, which you might notice sort of step up to the beginning of the San Andreas Fault. Um, so even though I'll talk about these earthquakes, what's interesting to me is what's going on in the gaps between the earthquakes and when are the next earthquakes going to occur and how big are they going to be. Um, just wanted to show this to you so you can get an idea of earthquake magnitude. Again, I talked about Hanks and Karanamori developed the moment magnitude scale. And the moment is related to the rigidity of the fault area times the area of the fault, the length and the width, times the amount of slip on the fault. So the Tohoku earthquake, the magnitude 9.0 in Japan in 2011, had 25 meters of slip on it, over 350 kilometers by 120 kilometers. So it was a very, very large earthquake. Now, some people like Tom Heaton here at Caltech will say, but actually, it should have slipped 50 meters to keep up with the plate tectonic rate. So what happened to the other 25 meters? Is it going to slip quietly, or is it going to cause another big earthquake, and we don't actually know those answers. Here's the magnitude 6.7 Northridge earthquake. It's tiny compared to this magnitude 9.0 event. And yet it was right under the San Fernando Valley, so it did a lot of damage. It was about 10 kilometers wide by 15 kilometers long, and it had about three meters of slip on it. So this was GPS in the 1980s and 1990s. Um, we went out, I first went out in one of the early field campaigns in 1986 when I was a grad, started my graduate student career. Um, we had benchmarks on the ground. We had to sight through a theodolite, make sure we were exactly over the point on the ground. Um, we, we had to make sure it was level. We'd set it up and track for a day or two and come back six months later and track for a day or two and come back six months later. And so about every six months for several years, I took these measurements in what's called the Ventura Basin. And here's the context of that. So again, here's the San Andreas Fault. It goes through this big bend right here. Um, this is Los Angeles right here. We're somewhere in here. Um, this is the San Fernando Valley. This is the Ventura Basin here, um, which is blown up here. It's a very deep basin, one of the deepest basins in the world. Earthquakes um, occur all the way down at about 28 kilometers depth there. The faults are ramping up and closing this basin. And frankly, one of the reasons for selecting this area for a PhD thesis was it was supposed to be closing at two centimeters a year. And that's something I could measure. And, graduate in a timely manner. <laughs> so, so we did that, but it was actually shortening at about seven millimeters a year. Fortunately, I still graduated in a timely manner. And we were testing some competing fault models the geologists had. Um, one camp said that these faults were decolamants, which were shallow faults in the mid to upper crust. The other um, set of geologists said they're these steeply dipping faults that, that go way down into the basin. And so 
We took those GPS results. I don't know if you can see these errors. They're relative to this arrows, relative to the station hopper on the north side of the Ventura Basin, which is here. And generally speaking, there's some rotation and other shear going on, but all these stations to the north are behaving as a block, and then all of these stations to the south are behaving as a block as they push up north. Um, so we took a profile through here, and you can see a very steep gradient across the basin. Again, though, it's not the two centimeters a year. It's more like seven millimeters a year. But we did modeling of that, and we showed that you had to have these steeply dipping faults. You couldn't have a um, shallow dipping fault. It didn't fit the data at all. So even with, you know, I don't know how many stations are there, seven or eight stations collected twice a year, we're still able to produce very interesting results. We published in Nature on November 25th, 1993, that um, we did a little estimate. So this is the, the style of fault that we were modeling and the style of fault that the Northridge earthquake was. We said that um, an earth, uh, based on the, the faults that we modeled in the local geology, we expected something like a magnitude 6.4 earthquake. And we pointed out that, that earth, such an earthquake is still large and potentially damaging. Um, January 17th, two months later, we had the 6.7 Northridge earthquake. So it was very close in magnitude. We didn't put a time frame on that. It could have happened 50 years later. It would have been just as valid and relevant. But what was interesting to me is that the fault broke in this steeply dipping fault, exactly where we had identified it. And we had them buried at about um, five kilometers at the top, which is about where this fault rupture ended. And so it, it showed that using these geodetic data, we can understand what's going on at depth much better than we can. And there was no seismicity. This fault just popped off in a magnitude 6.7 earthquake. So there was no seismicity to elucidate that fault plane. So this is, was a way of getting at that and doing that. The earthquake caused $25 billion of damage, 58 depth, deaths, and about 100,000 people were displaced. Um, there were also some U INSAR measurements taken. I just wanted to explain INSAR. I did a little bit already. But again, the aircraft's flying. It's looking. That's actually backwards. This G3 is looking left. Um, it's 24 centimeter wavelength L-band instrument. We do this repeat pass interferometry, which I described. And the color cycle on these fringe maps is about 12 centimeters. Um, so we get ground rain changes or a, a point on the ground in UAVs are it's seven meter pixel size in the radar, air, spaceborne radar, it's more like 30 to 60 meter pixel size and it's that pixel relative to the instrument that's flying. So we're not getting the full 3D motion unless we have multiple looks, but we get a good sense of what's going on, especially if we fuse it with a GPS data. So here again is the Ventura Basin. This is the Northridge earthquake, and you see these fringes. There's 12 centimeter fringes. If you count them up, you'll count this 40 centimeters of uplift. So we have this nice bullseye of deformation, basically where there's a color change, and I'll come back to this many times in my talk. If there's a color change, there's motion occurring. Um, so we had this bullseye. There was 40 centimeters of uplift. So that was very interesting. Um, it matched the fault we had modeled prior to the earthquake. But to me, what was even more interesting were the post-seismic motions. There was an additional, if we, if we subtract out the rupture model, there's an additional um, 12 centimeters of uplift that occurred for two years following the earthquake. 90% of that motion was aseismic. I matched it against the seismicity, and we could figure out the stress, strain direction or stress field from the seismicity, and the GPS vectors matched it, but the seismicity only accounted for 10% of that. So there's a lot of quiet, squishy motion going on all the time in these, these basins, um, certainly in the basins and maybe on other faults. One of the things that we were testing is whether afterslip was occurring on the main rupture plane or whether relaxation in the lower crust was 
occurring because we know the lower crust is hotter and it flows kind of like honey. If, or if you have some cold molasses and you stab it with a pen, it's going to flow. So we were actually expecting that that was going to occur after this Northridge earthquake. And if that happened, then the mountains would have grown 40 centimeters in the earthquake and then subsided, subsided over time from this post-seismic relaxation. Well, instead, they grew 12 centimeters. And we modeled the GPS results that we had, these, these things here, and these vectors kind of pushing together and squirting out. And we could only fit the data with afterslip on the fault. So what happened was the fault broke. And then it just slowed down over two years um, with an additional 12 centimeters of motion on the fault. One thing that was even more interesting to me, um, and a group of us wrote a paper on this, is over here at JPL, again on the Sierra Madre Fault, um, some of the people that did the data processing noticed that not only did the, the station jump, and this is actually the jump is taken out here, but the station jumped at the time of the earthquake. Then it took off in a completely different direction. So this is. Um, latitude, longitude, and height plots of this vector at J the JPL Mesa. So this is a time series. And if, if you're not changing in time, you'd expect it to be linear. So we've detrended it. And we, you can see after the Northridge earthquake, it deviates substantially. We had local surveys, so we knew that it wasn't the Mesa that was unstable. But the local survey, all the stations moved the same as the Mesa. Um, and when we modeled there, we, we weren't that well constrained because we didn't have very much data. These stations weren't continuous at the time. Only the JPL Mesa was, starting, as you can see here, in June of 92. The Sierra Madre Fault crept at the surface at about the top half kilometer, very large area, um, and it just slipped for about two years. So it wasn't the main shock rupture plane at all. In fact, it was several fault dimensions away. And yet, we see these long-range interactions between these faults. And that's what we want to understand is if one fault breaks, what's the likelihood of another fault breaking? In between here is the 1972 San Fernando earthquake, which ruptured up. So San Fernando ruptured this way, Northridge ruptured this way. And what I'm concerned about is what's happening in here. It seems to me there should be a big right lateral unaccounted for shear there. Um, this paper, I, I have a long set of conclusions, but I want to read them because I thought they were very timely for this talk. Um, because nothing's really changed. The recommendations from it are the same today, and we've implemented some of them. So we said, the hypothesis of significant aseismic slip following the Northridge event on a fault that did not rupture in the earthquake carries with it important implications for both seismic hazard assessment and geodetic measurement strategies. So we're trying to implement those both in our real field observations as, as well as within our models, and I'll show you at the very end the fault interaction model. A seismic slip on fault systems in the greater Los Angeles region may appreciably affect estimates of their activity, and so we want to understand that. Now we're able to much better blanket the region and look for that. Evaluating the extent and frequency of such a seismic movements is important in any attempt to fully characterize the tectonic deformation field. That's very important. Um, and it's important to understand where faults are slipping quietly and where they may have earthquakes. And actually, some faults creep and have earthquakes, like the northern, a northern section of the San Andreas Fault. Large earthquakes, I should say. If aseismic events turn out to be common, they may explain the hypothesized earthquake deficits in Southern California by Dolan et al. and other regions of the world. And we still don't know that answer. Is it that there's a slip deficit because there's actually quiet creep going on, or is there a slip deficit because we're waiting for the big one? Probably a little bit of both. Um, as this study illustrates, continuous temporal and dense spatial geodetic coverage will be essential. So we've been working towards that. 
And dense spatial sampling will help to identify the sources of strain accumulation, while more frequent temporal sampling will improve the characterization of nonlinear time dependence. When we set out in the 80s to measure plate tectonic motions and motions in LA, we just assumed they were linear and you might have a jump in an earthquake. But not only are they um, nonlinear, but they're not even necessarily predictable in a manner that we would expect to see this sort of elastic strain rebound. It's much more complicated than that. So here's GPS now. The Northridge earthquake really spurred um, the dense geodetic network, GPS network in Southern California called the Southern California Integrated GPS Network. And then following on that was the Plate Boundary Observatory, which goes all up and down the west coast of the US. The horizontal position accuracy is about one millimeter. Vertical is two millimeters. And we obtain about one millimeter a year horizontal velocities. Now, you saw that original picture of me in the field with the benchmark sitting in dirt. So I was amazed that we were able to make some regional um, inferences out of those data. These are now drilled, drilled down 10 meters into the ground so that um, we're sampling the tectonic motion, not just the local soil motion. And I'll show some pictures of us in the field yesterday around La Habra, and we can see that surface motion is actually quite important. We have to understand what's sur local surface motion versus fault motion from depth. So here's a time series. Um, down here, we're going to move. In a minute, we're going to move down here. Not yet. I have one more thing to show. But for a station here, and you can see how complicated it is. So things were going along nicely at the plate tectonic rates. Again, here's time here. Here's northeast and up. Um, east, north, and up, I should say. So we had this nice linear trend, except for vertical, which is probably water in the agricultural area as much as anything. The El Maracucapa event happened, and we had a big jump. And then we had this post-seismic decay. But the site never really recovers and picks up on the plate tectonic rate again, at least not yet, um, as of January 2013. Then there's an aftershock, another small earthquake, and it starts to maybe pick up with a plate tectonic rate. But it's very complicated, and we have to measure these things for very long time periods. So I got curious, actually, this morning. Um, we have a lot better tools now. This is a radar image um, from UAV SAR, the JPL Mesa. Um, I wanted to look at the most recent one. Yesterday, like I said, and I'll show some images, we were out looking at cracks in the pavement. So now I see cracks in the pavement everywhere, and I want to understand what's, <laughs> what's a tectonic crack versus bad asphalt. Um, so the JPL Mesa site is right here on this profile. So this red corresponds to this end. This blue corresponds to this end. We cross the Sierra Madre Fault, which is actually in a bunch of splays all the way out into the um, reservoir here. And the JPL Mesa is about right here. And you can see that there's a little bit of an offset of maybe a millimeter, 1.3 millimeters, between this side of the fault and this side of the fault. Um, since we're actually looking almost right down the fault, that corresponds to perhaps 1.3 millimeters a year of motion on the fault that's occurred on the last year. That's actually about the slip rate of that fault, so that's correct. But I'm always surprised that these things creep all the way up at the surface. Um, here's an expression of the fault right outside the east gate of JPL. You can see it's, this is about one meter here, so it's, it's very discrete plane. Um, and again, here's just for reference out at the East Lot Bridge and for some scale. So now we're going to move down to the Salton Trough. Um, again, we had the spreading of the Gulf of California and then this right lateral system of shear faults. The earthquake was a magnitude 7.2. It happened on April 4th, 2010. And um, we had started flying UAV SAR in October of 2009. And so we were very lucky 
to be able to capture that earthquake, which we see here. And I'll, this is just kind of an oblique perspective view. So what happened, the, the summary here is that we had three meters of slip on the main shock rupture, but it was mostly in Mexico and we weren't observing in Mexico. Um, and then it had slip on other faults, which really surprised us. We had a lot of slip on this conjugate left lateral fault, the Uha fault. There was 36 millimeters of slip on the Imperial fault, 14 millimeters of slip on the Superstition Hills fault, and then nine millimeters of slip on the East Elmore Ranch Fault, and this is the beginning of the San Andreas Fault. There was a little bit of slip on it, but we don't see it with UAV SAR data. It was observed in the field. So if we back off, here's the setting. Here's um, LA, Santa Barbara's out here. Um, Vandenberg's out here is the Gulf of California. Here's the size of the interferograms that we get. Here's several stacked together. Here's the faults um, of the region. And here we have all this deformation. Again, where there's fringes, there's a lot of motion. Um, and then we have small amounts of slip on these faults. What we have to do, though, is disentangle these really huge overprints from these really tiny motions that we're measuring. So if we take a profile just across the earthquake rupture area, the northern end, um, this is ground range change. So this, the instrument is flying west, looking down to the left. So these are pixels on the ground relative to the, the aircraft, but they're moving away on the right side here, it's a right lateral fault, and they're moving towards the aircraft on the left side. So we have this big shear here. Um, again, there was three meters of motion here. Across this interferogram, we see about um, 60 centimeters of ground range change. And the slip on the faults was at the millimeters to centimeter level. So it's a little bit difficult to assess what happened to the faults at depth, because we, it's difficult to disentangle those processes. Um, but again, the summary. Um, you can see, I don't know if you can see it here, but maybe you can imagine it. There's the imperial fault comes up through here. You can see a line through here on the Superstition Hills fault, and there's a line through here. Um, it's not projecting all that well, but the faults actually, this, these lines get more diffuse as we go north, and that's because the faults are creeping deeper and deeper as we go north, and the slip decreases as we go north. And of course, what we want to know is how does this transfer, how does this huge displacement from the Elmira Kukapa earthquake down here transferred to the other faults, and which one is it likely to mostly transfer to. The other interesting thing is the A seismic slip is equivalent to about a 4.9 to 5.3 magnitude earthquake. So it's, it's fairly big. It's the size of the La Habra earthquake, what we ha which we had. So I showed you those GPS measurements from Northridge where they were very, very sparse, and then I showed you what the GPS network looks like here. This is a little hard to see, and where you want to focus is down here, but I think it's Interesting, in a way, we, we're looking to visualize some of our data. So what we've done is we've taken the GPS stations and their velocities, and we've interpolated in space and time so that every single pixel has a velocity on it, attached to it, or a, a position that moves over time. And then we exaggerate the horizontal motion, and we make a movie of that. So I'll go through this a few times. And like I said, focus down here. So I put trackers in for the first time. This is the original position. Um, we have shear before the earthquake, two years to five days before the earthquake. So if you go back and forth, you can see that motion through here. Um, at the time of the earthquake, then, the ground actually goes the other way. So I'm going to go forward again. So here we're two years before, five days before. We have this elastic pulling back from the earthquake. And then we have post-seismic motion, and slowly these stations start to turn around. Um, this was last made in 2000, late 2011. I want to add more data and see what these stations are doing now. Um, there's a substantial amount of post-seismic motion of this entire region. It's like a big um, rubber sheet that's being stretched. 
So now if I show it without, again, watch here. You'll see before the earthquake, we have shear. We have elastic deformation from the earthquake, and then we have post-seismic motion. Um, and then continued shear as it starts to turn around. Now I'm going to show this movie, and for time I'm only going to show it once. But we're going to zoom in here. There's a counter that's going to come up that's unfortunately up over here. Um, so what you see is a really subtle deformation here. Then you see the jump back from the earthquake, and then there's um, a little bit of motion turning around, which you don't see that well. Now I'm going to move up to the La Habra earthquake, which is up here. Um, here's our two interferograms that we have of the event. This is the seismicity plotted on it. Again, we have these right lateral faults with these left lateral steps. Everywhere on La Habra was one of these left lateral conjugate steps. Um, it was a 5.1 earthquake. Here's what the interferogram looks like. Um, I've plotted on it. The, the instrument here is flying to the east, looking left. These pink areas are moving away from the instrument, and the blue-green areas are moving towards the instrument. And that's actually consistent with what the size. Misty says the main shock is up here. Here's one of the large aftershocks. And I've plotted something down here I'll talk about in a minute. Um, so this whole area moved up over this area here, and it moved in a left lateral sense of motion. So it kind of this oblique slip thrusting up. And this area, the Coyote Hills, really is where they got the most of it. If we look at the opposite look then, so the instrument's flying to the west, looking this direction. Again, we see this thrusting or the shortening across the Coyote's Hills here. But this station is actually moving, or not station, set of pixels is moving towards the instrument. So that tells us with these multiple looks that most of the deformation here is probably up, whereas most of the deformation here is more of a thrusting type of motion. Um, I plotted here, so this is sort of a general model of what's going on where the faults are at depth. I plotted here what's called a hinge line or a, a fold associated with a fault. And my colleague, Lisa Grant, who I'll show in the next slide, said, well, I want to know about Trojan Way because there's a fault that's expressed at the surface there, and there's a little fold hinge associated with it. And do you see anything? So I um, plunked Trojan Way into into Google Earth, where I was looking at the interferogram. And um, here we are comparing the Google Earth images and some of the papers that she dug out yesterday in the field. So when I zoomed into that area, Trojan Way, I saw this set of fringes here, which were really quite pronounced. Um, they're from down here, way south of the earthquake. I plotted, I extracted the ground range change, again, the pixels relative to the instrument. And you see this big bowing up here. Um, this is this little fault bend fold going on. And here we are. So this through, this is a big wall. And there's a large parking lot on the other side of this distribution thing, which we managed to find our way into. There's cracks at an angle that go through here that's oblique. And this, these set of fringes actually cut this building here. So it's, it's not an anthropogenic or a human-made feature, we don't think. Um, so here we are. This wall was cracked. And it was kind of bowed out. So where Maggie's standing, the crack went this way. Where I'm standing, the crack went this way. And where Lisa's standing, the crack was vertical. So again, this whole area just kind of pushed up and pushed this fence out. Now, as we looked around a little more, this is actually some kind of chevron pipe. Oil tends to pool down where there's anticlines, because um, it rises up above the water and gets trapped. And there are actually little pipes in the ground here. So somebody's measuring this motion as this thing fans out, which we thought was interesting. But here's an example where, combined with the geology and the field work, you can 
zoom in in your office with Google Earth and you can find these things that you otherwise wouldn't. Um, and then we went out in the field to ground truth it. The resolution of UAV SAR is seven meters, whereas the resolution of the GPS network is about 10 kilometers. Um, so here we are, here's a cross section through the Coyote Hills. If you heard about the water main break at Rosecrans um, and Gilbert, that was right here. There were actually several that I had plotted on the previous plot. Gilbert comes around here, the reddest, it's a little dim, but the reddest red is here. And if I take a cross section through here, um, you see some faulting here. You see a lot of probably compression in the Coyote Hills here um, in this smooth profile. This is the topography, because originally when I saw these, I thought, oh, the whole area just slumped in a landslide, but it was actually going in the wrong sense to be going downhill. So it's useful to plot it with, with the topography as well. So we drove around with these bright spots that I showed you on the previous one, and right here where the reddest red is, this one glass panel broke out, and the curb was buckled up. So you can see at these seven meter pixel levels, in fact, one place we had a little tiny bullseye of fringes, tiny, tiny, and we went there and there was a little piece of curb on somebody's front yard that was pushed up. Um, so it's almost too complicated, almost too much information. Here, um, we, we stopped here because we, we saw some more red across Rosecrans here. Um, the fault model, again, is this thrust left lateral sense of motion. If you look at this curb here, you can see it's offset to the left. So again, the, the UAV SAR guided us to all of these types of locations. <coughs> here was another one. John Cassani came with us yesterday, and I was walking along in this spot here with my head on the interferogram on the piece of paper, and I'm counting houses because the interferogram was faded out. And John said, what are you doing? I said, I'm counting houses. One, two, three, four. And I looked across the street, and there was a fringe across the street. And I moved the paper out of the way and looked down. I was standing right on this crack. So I was really impressed. And here it is right here. Here's a little fringe right here. Um, over here was a water main break. And then I think I didn't include it, but there was a curb that was pushed up around this corner here. So again, it kind of took us right to where the active motion was. And this roof was really messed up. It went right into this house. And you can see it on the interferogram. So you can see at house scale, this deformation. Um, and I just wanted to divert for a minute for a little fun, a little side note that I I started noticing actually everywhere I look now. And that's that you can see landfills subside or compact or whatever it is they do with landfills. And my colleague Lisa Grant says that um, they're actually supposed to compact landfills at a certain rate. So we can measure that with UAV SAR, it turns out. Um, here's one of them, the Puente Hills landfill. It's the largest landfill in the world. If you draw a section through it, you'll see about 28 centimeters of vertical subsidence or um, well, assuming it's all vertical, it's about 20 centimeters, but if you project it to vertical, it's 28 centimeters of vertical subsidence across the landfill in a two-month period. We had one flight we did eight hours apart on a certain day because we wanted to see if we could see solid earth tides across faults, and the same landfill subsided by about three centimeters in that eight-hour period. Um, and in a different two-month period, it also subsided by 28 centimeters vertically, so maybe they're driving around compacting the trash at the rate at which they're supposed to be doing that. I don't know. Um, but I thought that was interesting. There's several in just this interferogram, several landfills, and you can see compaction or subsidence on all of them. Um, one of the important things, it's it's interesting result, but we have to make sure we separate all these things out so that we're really getting at what the faults are doing and not what the our garbage is doing or what you know the local landscaping is doing. Um, I just wanted to wrap up with a simulation. So one of the other things we do is we, we put all the faults 
into a model. So we have these vertical faults and we put friction on the faults based on what we know about the geology. And we just drive this model with a plate tectonic rate. And we let them fail and we let them do what they do in the model. Um, and here's what they do in a, this is like a 40,000 year simulation, but this is just the last 100 years. So we want to do all these red things popping off are earthquakes, um, as we would see them from a radar satellite if it were flying. You see these 7.5, 6.6, 7.1. Over here we have the number of earthquakes versus the magnitude, and you want to make sure that corresponds to the scaling relation we see in the real seismicity. We're coming up here to a large magnitude 8.0. Um, you'll see in a minute. On this section of San Andreas that hasn't failed in a long, long time. Um, and as I said, we're worried about what's going on in between where the earthquakes were, where the San Andreas Fault is one of those spots. Um, and what we do then is we take these interacting fault models and we do statistics. So we want to see if there's an earthquake down here in, in Mexico, what does that say for the LA Basin Faults? Do they tend to break after that event more often or not, um, statistically? One of the results that we came up with many years ago is if you have a Landers-type earthquake, then you should have an LA Basin-type equivalent earthquake within about 20 years. And it's now 23 years since the Landers earthquake. So are we concerned about the uptick in seismicity? Yes. Do we know exactly what that means? No. Um, so to conclude, the geodetic measurements allow observation of seismic and aseismic ground motion. It's providing insight into earthquake fault processes and interactions between faults. And the continuous GPS and particularly systematic INSAR provide unprecedented details of earthquake fault behavior and interactions. I should mention that that Northridge post-seismic motion, we, had, we were lucky to have one day to take right before the earthquake. We weren't able to get another one until two years after the event. Now um, with UAV SAR, we fly about every six months. And with a US dedicated mission, we'll fly a repeat of about 12 days for INSAR, which should really change the way we understand faults. It's useful for addressing our exposure and responding to these disastrous events. So if we go back to the 80s, there were a handful of infrequently measured GPS stations. If we go back to the 90s, there was an advent of INSAR and continuous GPS measurements. In the 2000s, we had dense continuous GPS networks up and down the west coast of the US. In the 2010s, we have UAV SAR and the US INSAR mission just went to phase A um, about two, week, two or three weeks ago and that should launch in the 2020s. And a different way to look back, look at it is to flash back to 1997, and that's what we all looked like. Um, he's working on Insight on the seismometer, um, going to Mars, Greg, Maggie, me, um, and Jay Parker, all part of the Quake Sim team. Mike Heflin produced the velocities I showed from the GPS. Mike Watkins works on Grace, he's retired, and Jim Zumberg is, I don't know, division manager or deputy division manager or something. So we're all pretty much still here and still working together. With that, I'll get rid of that, and here I am today. 